Well, good morning. My name is Chad Donahoe. I'm the interim pastor at Grace, and we are currently in the midst of a series on the minor prophets. If you've been here, as you know, almost halfway through. In this morning, we have the book of Nahum. The book of Nahum. So, uh, if you've been following along, that might have thrown you off because I've been going in order. Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, and then Nahum. So I'm skipping Micah just for this week, and the reason is we can think of Nahum as a sequel to Jonah in the sense that both of those books focus their attention on Nineveh, the capital city of Assyria. So, but to begin, I want to set us up with, uh, oh, actually, I want to set you up with the potential to win $20,000. And here's what it is. If you ever find yourself on the game show Family Feud, and you get asked the question, why is the book of Nahum important for us to read and understand? Here are the top answers. Number one, it's in the Bible. All right? You've been been trained that way, right? Number two, it's a really important book that helps us more fully understand the nature of God, especially the mix of God's love and God's wrath. And with that, as I read chapter one of Nahum, let's keep in mind this nature of God, his love and his wrath together. And so uh, as we open up the word together, Nahum chapter one, let me pray for our time. And I'll take uh, my normal practice, I'll take one of Paul's prayers, this one out of Colossians chapter 1, and we will make it our own. So Lord, as we come to your scriptures, I I pray that you would fill us with the knowledge of your will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so that we would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to you, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. So I do pray that you would, through your word, strengthen us with all power, according to your glorious might, for all endurance and patience and with joy. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. And Nahum, chapter 1, we'll read through verses uh, 1 through 15. An oracle concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum, of Elkosh. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in the whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither, the bloom of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him, the hills melt, the earth heaves before him, the world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries. He will pursue his enemies into darkness. What do you plot against the Lord? 
He will make a complete end. Trouble will not rise up a second time. For they are like entangled thorns, like drunkards as they drink. They are consumed like stubble, fully dried. From you came one who plotted evil against the Lord, a worthless counselor. Thus says the Lord, though they are at full strength and many, they will be cut down and pass away. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. And now I will break his yoke from off you and will burst your bonds apart. The Lord has given commandment about you. No more shall your name be perpetuated from the house of your gods I will cut off. The carved image and the metal image I will make your grave for you are vile. Behold, upon the mountain, the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. Keep your feast, O Judah, fulfill your vows, for never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. And together the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. So if you are a reader of books, you probably come across books at times that as you're reading through, you come to a new chapter, and right under the new chapter is a quote before you enter into the contents of the chapter. And the quote usually is, you could say, a summary, or it goes along with the chapter that you are about to read. So I have a quote that I think will be helpful for the book of Nahum. So as I began to read and think about Nahum, I was jotting down some notes, and at the top of my page, I jotted down this quote, the kindness and severity of God. That's out of Romans chapter 11, verse 22. And Paul is referring to the kindness of God, meaning for those who are his, who embrace him as their Lord, and yet the severity of God, the severity of those who reject him and are under his judgment. Now, as I continued uh, in my study of Nahum, I came across a commentary that also used this exact verse to summarize the book of Nahum. I thought, oh, that, okay, that's confirmation. We're going to go with that. So, for me this morning, I want to frame Nahum with Romans chapter 11, verse 22. And again, here's the full quote. Now, when the kindness and severity, or, or sorry, let me start over. Note then the kindness and severity of God. Severity towards those who have fallen, but, kind, but God's kindness to you provided you continue in his kindness. See, that's a bit of a summary statement of the nature of God. And you could say Nahum is a case study for this verse of the kindness and severity. Because we'll see both those played out in Nahum, the kindness of God and the severity of God. What Nahum does helps us to understand the real nature of God. And when I, mean, when I say real nature of God, I mean the way that God has revealed himself to us through the scriptures. And not necessarily the kind of God that we want to create at times or that the world around us wants to think and create of God. See, we have to be careful because we're always prone to create God in our own image, the way that we want him to be. 
which means we're, we'll, you know, we'll be fine with the kindness of God, but maybe a little bit uncomfortable with the severity, meaning his wrath, maybe a little bit uncomfortable with that, but the nature of God is both. Nahum helps us to understand the real nature of God, but also Nahum helps us to understand the real world that we live in. See, the Bible is not, uh, does not put a Pollyanna spin, meaning a, a blind optimism on the world in which we live. Nahum reminds us that judgment is coming upon the world and for good reason. And again, we are often tempted to walk in the ways of the world. So we need Nahum. Even this prayer this morning that I prayed out of Colossians 1.9, it is to fill us with the will of God and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, that is through the scriptures, right? So that we will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him and bearing fruit. But again, the danger for us always is that the world would rub off on us and that we will walk in the ways of the world and not enduring faithfully as God's salt and light in the world. So what Nahum does is show us where the world is heading. So again, I want us to consider this morning the kindness and severity of God through the book of Nahum and then ask the question, how does this apply to our lives. So start in verse 1. An oracle concerning Nineveh. Now, an oracle, meaning this would be a divine message of judgment. This also goes on, verse 1, to say, the book of the vision of Nahum of Elkosh. This vision, supernatural revelation of things to come. And this is about Nineveh. Now, just real quick, if we can breeze through um, a little bit of history of Nineveh. Okay, so if we think through the Old Testament, God's people, the Israelites, at one point, one nation, but then because of some infighting, divided up into two kingdoms. A kingdom in the north, that would be Israel in Samaria, and there was the kingdom in the south, that's Judah, in Jerusalem. And so what happened with God's people is God continually was faithful to his people, called them to faithfulness, but over and over they were disobedient, God's people, to God. So God allowed nations to come in a form of punishment. Again, I've referred to this over and over as the ABCs of exile in the Old Testament. First A is Assyria. God allowed Assyria to conquer and to essentially exile and scatter the northern kingdom, Israelites, among other people groups. And then later on, God allowed Babylon to come against the southern kingdom and to scatter them. That's the B. And then the C would be Cyrus of Persia. Later comes along and allows those who are exiled in Babylon, some of them, to come back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple and to settle back in to Jerusalem. So with that... Here's the history that's significant. So Assyria conquered Israel. And Nahum is writing after that event, after Assyria has conquered Israel. 
And he's writing a divine message. This is from the Lord saying, Nineveh's days are numbered. As a quick reminder, we can think of the minor prophets as both foretellers and foretellers. The minor prophets are mostly foretellers, meaning think of them like preachers today. They give the word of God and call for an obedient response. They're foretellers. But we also have at times in the prophets that they are foretellers. They are predicting the future based on God's revelation of them. And this is what we have in Nahum. It's a great example of foretelling. God has given Nahum a vision of what will take place to Nineveh. Nineveh being that capital city of Assyria, of the Assyrian army. So as we go through verses 2 through 8, this is essentially a psalm of praise regarding God as this divine warrior. So listen to this language. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. Okay, so what jumps off the page is the severity of God. The Lord is a jealous God. Now, when we think of jealousy from a human perspective, that's not always the best trait, right? Like, ugh, he's such a jealous boyfriend. Translate, he's a control freak. But when we come to God, the trait of jealousy for a perfect God is perfect for us. And this is what God claims of himself. God claims he is a jealous God. We see this in Exodus chapter 20, verses 4 and 5. Now, when I say Exodus chapter 20, that's the Ten Commandments. Right? This is the second commandment where God says, You shall not make for yourself a carved image. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. Then later on, Exodus 34, verse 14. You shall, for you shall worship no other God, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. So God's jealousy is perfect for us. It's out of a desire to protect. And what is God protecting? He protects his own honor. He's the one true God, doesn't want our hearts seduced by idols that will eventually just destroy our lives. But also, God will protect his people from harm. And we see this, that the Lord, in verse 2, that the Lord is an avenging God. Now, the word avenging is used three times in these verses, Avenging, avenging, and then it says, vengeance. God, will take, God takes vengeance on his adversaries. So you just have to understand the Hebrew language, when something is repeated three times, there is great emphasis. Think in Isaiah 6. Holy, holy, holy is God, and we, we are to get the message of his holiness. Well, here there is a message that judgment on Nineveh Vengeance on Nineveh is inescapable. Verse 2 says the Lord is wrathful and he keeps wrath for his enemies. So God is angry. God is severely angry. 
So it begs the question, wait, is God loving or is God wrathful? The answer you know is yes, right? He is both. God's wrath, as one commentator put it succinctly, God's wrath is the reaction of his holiness to sin and evil in the world. And then, verse 3, the Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. So this right here, when Nahum says the Lord is slow to anger, great in power, no, by no means clear the guilty, this is an echo of Exodus 34, 6 and 7. Now, Exodus 34, 6 and 7, if you're, one of, if you're the type that doesn't mind marking up your Bibles, this should be underlined, highlighted, dog-eared, whatever it takes. Such an important verse in the Old Testament. This is the Lord revealing himself. Exodus 34, 6 and 7, where he says, The Lord, the Lord, the God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. Again, Nahum is just echoing this. But how do we reconcile these two truths? That God is jealous, avenging, wrathful, but he's also slow to anger. This is where a couple of verses help us. Genesis 15 is helpful, where God reveals to Abraham that his people, the Israelites, will eventually return to the promised land after some time. But he says this right before that, or he says right after that, he says, but verse 16, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Meaning, when the Amorites have reached the threshold from God's perspective of their sin and evil, God will displace them out of the land, and God's people will take the land. And then 2 Peter Chapter 3 is helpful. Peter's writing to Christians who are wondering, will God judge evil in the world? Will he punish the wicked? Peter's response, the Lord is patient, not wishing that any would perish, but that all should reach repentance. And it goes on, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief, meaning Peter is saying God's judgment is delayed as the gospel continues to go forth. But a day is coming when God's judgment will come to bear on those who do not repent. So Nahum is proclaiming that that day of judgment is coming on Nineveh. It is certain. And this is uh, in the question of why. And this, we're about to read some very strong language about Nineveh. Why such anger? Well, this goes back to a bit of history. So let's go all the way back. Let's go back to Adam and Eve. In Genesis chapter 1, God gave Adam and Eve this mandate. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. Essentially, the ultimate, uh, the ultimate desire there is to spread, to fill the earth, to spread across the earth the glory of God. Okay? But then sin enters the world, 
And what God does is sin becomes so wicked. Genesis 6-5 says, only the heart of man was only evil all the time. So God decides to bring judgment, but starts over again with Noah. And after he rescues Noah, gives the same cultural mandate. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. Again, the goal, the ultimate desire, to fill the earth with the glory of God. That's in chapter 9 that Noah gets that command. And then what we read in chapter 10 is this, or I'll just summarize it. We find that Nimrod built, built cities. One of them was Nineveh. The other was Babylon. Yes, Nimrod, I'll give you a second. Just work it through, the comments, the thoughts. I had at least three of them. I'm just going to pass on it. Um, so Nimrod, these cities of Nineveh and Babylon would prove throughout the Scripture to be secular cities. They are not spreading the glory of God. But what they're spreading is the autonomy of man, God being a law, or man being a law unto himself. What they spread is idolatry. What they spread is violence. Last week, we looked at the book of Jonah. Jonah was the reluctant prophet. Why was he reluctant? Because where did God call him to go preach? To Nineveh, to the Assyrians. Right? And Jonah wanted no part of that, and essentially Jonah told God, I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. And they did. They repented when Jonah preached this message, and God relented at that time, but their repentance did not last. So years later, this prophecy of Nahum comes true. And Nineveh is wiped out. And we know this that uh, in six, uh, 612 BC is when Nineveh was wiped out completely. And so, why? Why is God so angry? And it is because of sin and evil. And so, if we look at the Ninevites, we look at Assyria. It was interesting in my reading as I was. Um, as I was studying just the history behind the Assyrian army in Nineveh, that uh, anybody that would write on this topic would talk, they, they all had one thing in common, about how oppressive and cruel the Assyrians were. They were completely wicked. They were the superpower of the day, and they were on a quest to conquer the world, and when they would conquer, they would plunder, and so they were gaining, they were getting rich off everyone else. If that's not bad enough, it was the cruel torture that they were so arrogant about and so inhumane. It was, um, as one author puts it, in terms of atrocities per, uh, perpetuated, the Assyrian Empire has to be ranked with the concentration camps of Nazi Germany, Cambodia, Pol Pot, Uganda. Assyria is one instance of what happens when lust for power is combined with callous indifference to human, to human suffering. And as I read these accounts, they were so bad, I thought, maybe I read a section, and I just, no, I don't want to read it from the, uh, from the pulpit. 
how cruel and inhumane they were. It reminds me, uh, in a sense, I just as I read it, I just was angry reading these accounts. One of the authors mentioned Nazi Germany, uh, or the concentration camps of Nazi Germany, uh, just about a month ago. My family uh, went to the Union Station exhibit on Auschwitz, and I just walked through there angry. Right, and this is this really should be the response, our response of evil and sin in the world. Because we're image bearers, it should be anger, angry. And to recognize our anger is never perfect, but God has a holy, righteous anger against sin that is destructive to his very good world that he has created. So what's our comfort with the evil in the world? What was the comfort of Nahum, the audience that Nahum was writing to, so God doesn't look the other way at evil. Verse 3 says, And the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. And Nineveh is guilty. Nineveh has reached its limit. So I first asked when I read verses uh, 1 and 2, uh, or, or the 2 and 3 more specifically, uh, what jumped off the page? And for sure it's the severity of God. He's, he's jealous, avenging, wrathful. But uh, there's something else just waiting to jump off the page. And it is the kindness of God. And where do we see it? The words, the Lord. His name is mentioned five times in verses 2 and 3. And here's what's significant. Nahum did not refer to God as El or Elohim. These are more generic ways of describing God. It is the Lord, capital L-O-R-D. This is the name Yahweh. This is the personal name for God. This is the covenant name for God. This is the name that has a rich history and incredible significance for God's people. So that when Nahum is writing, the Lord is jealous. The Lord is avenging. The Lord is wrath. This is their personal God. This is how God revealed himself to Moses in Exodus chapter 3. If you recall Exodus 3, think burning bush. right? God came to Moses, said, I have seen the affliction of my people, and I'm going to get them out of there. That There is in Egypt under the oppression. Moses asked well, if I go to my people and say, who has sent me, who am I to tell them? God says, tell them I am who I am, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, all-powerful, all-sufficient God. It's Yahweh. Later, in Exodus chapter 34, verse 14, God tells his people, you shall worship no other God, for the Lord Yahweh whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Here's what I want to do. So I want to connect this idea of God's covenant love with his jealousy. And as I was thinking about this, I pulled a book off my shelf. This is um, The Cry of the Soul. This is a book that's written by a counselor, Dan Allender, and a theologian, Tremper Logman. They have a chapter called Divine Desire, the Jealous Love of God. And I just want to read a couple of sections here as we think about 
God's covenant love and that expression of his jealousy. At first glance, the language of Exodus 34, 14 seems shocking. Do not worship any other God, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. God has many names in the Old Testament, Yahweh, El Shaddai, the God of the fathers, the Lord of hosts. They all describe his character, the exact import of many of the names occasion vigorous debate among scholars. The name God receives in Exodus 34, 14, however, is crystal clear. He is jealous. Moses is thus affirming that jealousy is a divine trait. Of whom is God jealous? Read long enough in the Old Testament, you'll know that he is jealous of idols, whose worship seduces Israel. God desires to protect his people when they cozy up to foreign gods. He yearns for intimate relationship and cannot stand it when someone or something else gets in the way, especially something as powerful and destructive as idolatry. They end this chapter with this. It is God's jealous love that both unnerves us and draws us to him. His relentless pursuit, his fierce hatred of any rival, and his incomprehensibly willingness to anguish, meaning suffer on a cross, to anguish on our behalf captures our heart for his love. His jealousy is our shield. It is our promise of eternal protection and passionate exclusivity. It is our confidence that the divine lover will win his bride. The divine lover, God, will win his bride, the church, his people. And as I thought about this, I was reminded once again of the covenant formula when it says when uh, we will win his bride or, or God will win his bride and, and uh, the covenant formula, right, that I keep forcing upon you, I will be your God, you will be my people. Here's the deal with that. Um, if you've been here for quite a few weeks, you know that I, I will point to you and, and you are supposed to respond. Covenant formula, I will be your God, you will be my people. Just to, I think this probably goes without saying, but um, this, I'm just not looking for just casual audience participation. This isn't like a, just a fun little game for me. And here's why. Um, I want the covenant formula to haunt you forever. I want the youth and the kids in here, before they go down a path of foolishness, to recall I will be your God, you will be my people. And the reason is, the reality of the covenant has so transformed my life. The more that I understand the God of the scriptures, the way it holds, the covenant holds the scriptures together, this covenant with Adam and then Noah, and then Moses and Abraham, David, and this new covenant, and throughout all these covenants, these promises that continue to build, that God will bless his people, that we'll be his treasured possession, that he'll secure us for all eternity. And I look at the Israelites and their lives and how faithless they were and they failed over and over and God did not give up. And I look at my life and how faithless I am at times 
And God has not given up in his promises that he will not give up. And maybe more significant for me as I think about my kids, how often I have prayed and at times in tears for my kids. Oh God, reminding God he is a covenant-keeping God. Do you think God needs to be reminded of that? No, but I do. Oh God, please, please draw my kids to yourself. Please protect them. Please do whatever it takes. Thank you for your faithfulness. So if I don't have God as a covenant-keeping God, I've got nothing and neither do you. I think that was probably some horrible grammar in there, but we're going to keep going. I will be your God. And the, and the other part of that is, and you will be my people. And what God calls us to is faithfulness. God, God as the husband, the church as the bride, he has done everything needed for faithfulness, for our faithfulness, but then calls us to walk in light of that. God is jealous for his people. So in case you are wondering, with the book of Nahum, my normal practice is to go through, um, to go through uh, the whole book. I do the Minor Prophets in one Sunday and to go through it all. I'm, I'm only at verse 3, right? We're still going to get through all of it. Okay, just we're going to put on our running shoes now. We're going to go a little quicker. Verses 3 through 5. Power, powerful imagery of this divine warrior who intervenes for his people. But before I do that, I should probably, if I just really, if I just really uh, made you nervous, I'm not saying that we're going to do a two-hour sermon. All right, we're going to be okay. But let's do this. Verses uh, 3 through 5, look at this language of God who will intervene for his people. His way is in, I'm in the second part of uh, verse 3, his way is in the whirlwind and storm and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry, likely a reference to Egypt. Bashan and Carmel wither, the bloom of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him, the hills melt, the earth heaves before him, the world and all who dwell in it. Essentially, if we're forgetting who this God is, this is the God where the mountains quake before him, the hills, everything heaves, all who... This is the one true God creator of heaven and earth. And then, this moves on to verse 6. These two questions. Who can stand before his indignation? Let me try that again. Indignation. Who can endure the heat of his anger. His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. Who can stand? This is the severity of God against sin and evil in his glorious world. What sinner can stand? And the answer will be not the Ninevites, their time has run out. But then look at verses seven and eight. So much of this is the severity of God. But now look at the kindness of God woven in. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. His goodness. This is an echo in many ways of Psalm 
46. God is a refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. We need to hear that word. And do we believe it? Do we live this way of God's character in our lives? It says he knows. The Lord knows those who take refuge in him. That knows, that word in Hebrew, yada, it is an intimate, personal knowledge. He knows his people. He knows what they need. The kindness of God. But then in verse 8, but with an overwhelming or an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries and will put his enemies into darkness. Again, the severity of God against sin. So what we've had so far in verses 2 through 8, you could say are a wide-angle lens of God's perspective on the world, of his kindness, his covenant love, right? But also the severity, his judgment against sin. But now, Nahum's book will focus in and narrow in specifically on Nineveh, or the, uh, the Assyrians. So we see this in verses 9 through 11. It says, what, verse 9, What do you plot against the Lord? That you, meaning Assyria, he will make a complete end. Trouble will not rise a second time. For they are like an entangled thorns, like, drunk, uh, like drunkards as they drink. They are consumed like stubble, fully dried. From you... Likely, Nineveh, from you came one who plotted evil against the Lord, a worthless counselor. So it's interesting. They plotted, the scriptures say they plotted, they plotted evil against the Lord. And you'd ask the, we could ask the question, wait, do they against the Lord or God's people? And the answer again, of course, is yes. This goes back to the fact that God is a covenant-keeping God. And what did he tell Abraham? Genesis 12. Those who honor you, I will honor. Those who dishonor you, I will curse. You mess with God's people, you end up messing with God. That's the reality of God's covenant love. And then verse 12, thus says the Lord, though they are at full strength and many, and let me pause there, so Nahum likely wrote this at the height of the Assyrian dominance. They were a superpower at that time. In fact, uh, what's been uncovered is that um, Assyria, the, the, city, the inner city of Nineveh, there was an eight-mile wall around it. This wall was 100 feet high. And that wall expanded. The width of it was wide enough for three chariots to, to be side by side. Like it seemed impenetrable. But God says... You are at full strength, and you are many. They will be cut down and pass away. Then, verse 12, Though I have afflicted you, that you meaning Judah, I will afflict you no more. And now I will break his yoke from off you and will burst your bonds apart. So yes, by the way, it is true that God allowed Assyria to come against 
the Israelites, and then later he did allow Babylon to come against Judah in the south. But we have to understand God did that to punish his people, to draw them back to him. But Assyria and Babylon went too far in their evil. That wasn't God's intent, and he will judge them accordingly. Verse uh, uh, 14, the Lord has given commandment about you, Nineveh, no more shall your name be perpetuated from the house of your gods I will cut off, the carved image and the metal image, I will make your grave for you are vile. And then verse 15, behold upon, upon the mountain the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. Keep your feast, O Judah, fulfill your vows, for never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. Cut off. This verse 15, on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. That's an echo. That goes back to Isaiah chapter 52, speaking of on the mountain are the feet of those who bring good news. Later on, the apostle Paul will pick up on this in Romans chapter 10, and talk about how beautiful are the feet who bring good news. So what is this good news? In the context here and in the Old Testament, it's the promise that God will overthrow his enemies. It's the promise that God will provide a way out for his people out of exile, and that God will extend to them Peace, that word peace, shalom, it's wholeness. And what we understand of the gospel as, as, as Paul picks this back up and talks about how beautiful are the feet who bring good news, the good news of the gospel. It is the gospel and only the gospel that brings complete peace. And that peace is wholeness. It's the promise of peace with God, of peace with one another. It's perfect Peace. It's no more shame. That's the promise of what the gospel will bear. Now, as we come to chapter 2, I will just say this. Uh, I have MP FOMO. I do have minor prophet fear of missing out, and it's this. I don't want you to miss out on this. So what I'm going to do is I am going, and this is part of the plan, I'm just going to read through chapters 2 and 3, and I'm just going to force myself not to make very many comments. Part of the reason I'm doing this is I want us to get through all, through all of Nahum. But also, one of the things that everybody writes about Nahum or, or biblical scholars is how beautiful, beautifully crafted it is. He is a powerful poet with his creativity and his imagery. And I want us to capture, or I want us to get a feel of his, uh, just his poetry and the way he describes what will take place. First, in chapter 2, the destruction is all about the destruction of Nineveh. Verse 1, the, scatter, the scatterer has come against you. Scatterer meaning God, but really God's sovereignty by way of using Babylon. Babylon is the next superpower that will rise up. Babylon will be the one, along with the Medes, that defeats Assyria. 
says, the scatterer has come, uh, come against you. Man the ramparts, watch the road, dress for battle, collect all your strength, meaning prepare yourself for this battle. For the Lord is restoring the majesty of Israel as the majesty of, or the majesty of Jacob as the majesty of Israel. For plunderers have plundered them and ruined their branches. Again, the kindness of God. God has a plan. He will restore the majesty of his covenant people. And again, we could say thank you, Jesus, for that reality. And then verse 3. In verses 3 through 10, we see uh, the, uh, the message of this invading army. This will be Babylon that comes. The shield of his mighty men is red. His soldiers are clothed in, in scarlet. That red or that scarlet could be the colors of the army. It could be blood. The chariots come with flashing metal on the day he musters them. The cypress spears, uh, the cypress spears are brandished. The chariots race madly through the streets. They rush to and fro through the squares. They gleam like torches. They dart like lightning. He remembers his officers. They stumble as they go. They hasten to the wall. The siege tower is set up. The river gates are open. The palace melts away. Its mistress is stripped. She's carried off. Her slave girls lamenting, moaning like doves, beating their breasts. Nineveh is like a pool whose waters run away. Halt, halt, they cry, but none turn back because they're fleeing. Verse 9, plunder the silver, plunder the gold. There is no end of the treasure or of the wealth of all precious things. They're now being plundered. All the greed they've collected is doing them no good now. Verse 10, desolate, desolation and ruin. Hearts melt, knees tremble, anguish is in all loins. All faces grow pale. And then we get to verse 11, which is a bit of a taunt. Refers to them as lions. And if you think of a lion in a lion lion den, think of ruthless lions pursuing prey, right? And then going back to their den of safety. So, verse 11, where is the lion's den, the feeding place of the young lions, where the lion and lioness went, where the cubs were with none to disturb? The lion tore enough for his cubs and strangled prey for his lioness. He filled his caves with prey and the dens with torn flesh. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord. I will burn your chariots in smoke and the sword shall devour your young lions. I will cut off your prey from the earth and the voice of your young messengers shall be no longer heard. Chapter 3. Woe to the bloody city, all full of lies and plunder, no end to their prey. This again is speaking to just the the evil and the sin of Assyria. And then, starting chapter verse 2, Babylon is coming. The crank of the whip, the rumble of the wheel, galloping horse, bounding chariot, uh, horseman charging, flashing sword, glittering spear, Host of slain, heaps of corpses, dead bodies without end. They stumble over the bodies. And all for the countless whorings of the prostitute, graceful and of deadly charms, who betrays nations with her whorings and peoples with her charms. Verse 5, Behold, 
I am against you. This is now the third time of that refrain, I am against you. In chapter 2, it was verse 1 and 13, and now it is here. The Lord is declaring, he is against them for their evil, declares the Lord of hosts, and will lift up your skirts over your face. I will make nations look at your nakedness and kingdoms your shame. I will throw filth at you and treat you with contempt and make you a spectacle, and all who look on you will shrink from you and say, Wasted is Nineveh, who will grieve for her? Where shall I seek comforters for you? Verse 8, are you better than Thebes? Okay, so Thebes was the Egyptian city, heavily fortified, that Assyria conquered, and now it's getting turned on them. Are you better than Thebes? That sat by the Nile with water around her and ramparts, her ramparts at sea? And water, her, uh, and water her wall. Cush was her strength. Egypt too. And that without limit. Put and the Libyans were her helpers. Yet she became an exile. She went into captivity. And then this is what the Assyrians did. Her infants were dashed in pieces at the head of every street corner. For her honored men, lots were cast. And all her great men were bound in chains. You also, Nineveh, will be drunken. You will go into hiding and will seek a refuge from the enemy. All your fortresses are like fig trees with first ripe figs. If shaken, they fall into the mouth of the eater. In other words, your fate will be just like that of Thebes. You will fall just like they fell. Verse 13. Behold, your droops... Your troops are women in your midst, meaning not trained for battle. The gates of your land are wide open to your enemies. Fire has devoured your bars. Draw water for the seas. Strengthen your forts. Go into the clay. Tread for mortar. Take hold of the brick mold, meaning draw water because they're going to put a stop to your water sources and make as many bricks as you can to fortify because it's coming. Verse 15, there will the fire devour you or the sword will cut you off. It will devour you like the locust. Multiply yourselves like the locust. Multiply like the grasshopper. In other words, you need a bigger army. Verse 16, you increased your merchants more than the stars of heaven. The locust spread its wings and flies away. Meaning these merchants brought so much wealth in, so much greed But it's like locusts are coming through and you're going to be stripped bare. Verse 17, your princes are like grasshoppers, your scribes like clouds of the locust, settling on the fences in a day of cold. When the sun rises, they flee away, but no one knows where they are because everyone's fleeing. Verse 18, your shepherds are asleep, O king of Assyria, your nobles slumber, your people are scattered on the mountains with none to gather them. Just have to pause, because we, the, the ki- we don't see the kindness right here, but we know the kindness, our good shepherd, right? We were scattered, drew us into the flock. Praise the Lord. Verse 19, there is no easing your hurt, your wound is grievous. All who hear the news about you clap their hands over you, they're celebrating, for upon whom has not come your unceasing evil. I just want, you, want to make a note. Notice this ends in a question. 
The other prophet who ended their, uh, their, minor, their, their book, another minor prophet, that ended their book in the question was Jonah. And if you remember what his question, God asked, shall I not pity Nineveh? And then God extended sovereign mercy to Nineveh because they relented. But here we are at the end, upon whom has not come your unceasing evil? What this means is sovereign judgment is now arriving for Nineveh. With that, what we see in the book of Nahum, we see the real character of God, his kindness and his severity, his covenant love. He is jealous and he will protect his people. And we see the real world. We see the violence, the lust, the greed, deceit, the lies, the arrogance, the idolatry, all of these of Nineveh and Babylon. But as we know, these live on today in our world. And here's what we have to be mindful of. We always have to be mindful of the dominant culture around us and what is creeping in to our hearts and our minds. Right? Nineveh talked about the charms of the prostitute, alluring people and nations away. And for us to be so mindful of that. In the very beginning, my prayer out of Colossians chapter 1 was a prayer about walking, uh, walking in the wisdom of the Lord. And the question is always for us, how are we walking? Colossians chapter 3, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Or you could say, put to death, therefore, what is like Nineveh, like, like Babylon, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. And as I'm reading this, the question is, what's creeping up in our own hearts and our own minds? But now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. We really are. We are not, uh, we are not citizens of Nineveh and Babylon. We are citizens of the kingdom of God. Colossians chapter 1 says we have been transferred from the domain of darkness and into the Son, into uh, the kingdom of God's beloved Son. That is our identity. And so again, Nahum is a reminder of God's kindness. He has transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son. But it's also a warning of the sins of the world around us and the need for us to protect our hearts. Romans eleven twenty two. Note then the kindness and severity of God, severity towards those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. We're called by our covenant-keeping God to walk in his ways. And in light of his character, his kindness and his severity, 
and with that, to worship. So let me pray, and we will continue our worship this morning. Lord, we give you thanks for your message to us through Nineveh, that you are a kind God. We see that, that you have a jealous love for us. You have a covenant love for us. But with that, I pray that you would help us to be faithful. You know the idols that are alive and well in each one of our hearts and our minds. You know what charms us about the world. And so I pray that you would uh, help us, strengthen us, convict us, um, Help us to see it for what it is. I pray that we would truly see our lives and and, and the world the way you see it, that we would hate sin, that we would love righteousness. And thank you that you are a God that does not look the other way with evil, but we see the ultimate display of kindness and severity. We see it at the cross. So thank you for your kindness that Jesus sacrificed himself for us, and the reality that should move our hearts and minds, that it was Jesus himself who took on your severity, your wrath, and so we give you thanks for the peace that that has brought us. Lord, we're also mindful of the needs of our congregation. You know the hurts, you know the joys, the sorrows, you know it all, you know what we need, each and every one of us, in particular, Lord, I do want to lift up John and Shelley Harvitt, their daughters Holland Harbor Havea, as John just found out a few days ago, diagnosed with colon cancer. So we pray, because it looks from the initial report that he will need surgery, he'll need chemo. So we do lift them up in this time. I pray that you would draw their hearts to Nahum 1-7, that you are good, that you are a refuge in the midst of trouble and that you know them, that they would take great peace and comfort in that and help us as a church to come alongside them. Again, Lord, you know the other needs uh, that, uh, that we have, and I pray that you would take um, all of our joys and our sorrows mixed together that uh, cause us to depend on you more fully. It's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen.